Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear in this podcast are mine and those of my guests. Well, if you remember just last spring, I think it was April, my colleague and Middle East politics expert Ruth Benartzi was with us to talk about the Israeli elections, which had just occurred, and to talk about uh, what they portended for Israeli politics. Uh, At that time, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seemed to have a good chance to form a new government and stay on as Prime Minister. Uh, But as it turned out, uh, he was not able to form a government, and new elections were called, and these elections occurred last Tuesday, September 17th. So I thought it would be a good idea to invite Ruth back to bring us up to date on what's been happening in Israel and what we can expect uh, from the results last week. And as it turns out, we have some even some breaking news today about what's going on in Israel, which we'll get to in a minute. Since I gave a full rundown of Ruth's credentials uh, the last time she was here, I will not repeat them, but only just to say that she remains a distinguished associate professor of political science, and we're very happy to have her in our department. So let's get right to our discussion. So Ruth, welcome back, and thanks for agreeing to come in and talk with us about Israel. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. After the April elections, there was a failure to form a government. You want to tell us a little bit about why it happened, uh, why Netanyahu wasn't successful in putting together a coalition? Right. So if you remember in April, we discussed what the parliamentary system in Israel is like, how you build a coalition, uh, how the person who gets the mandate to try to form a coalition ahead of a party of the largest party, not always the largest party, as we're going to see right now, gets to try to negotiate with other parties a possible agreement to form a coalition that has to include more than 60, at least 61 of the 120 seats in order to have a majority, and then they have a government. Um, So we talked about the fact that back then in April, the right wing had 65 seats, um, the left had 55 seats. There were two clusters um, that were uneven, giving Netanyahu an advantage. And Netanyahu, as his party had the most votes, got to try to form a coalition. But we also discussed the fact that uh, each party, even small parties, in these kinds of scenarios has a lot of power. So if they refuse to sit in a coalition, they can break down the whole process of negotiating uh, and negotiating a coalition agreement and creating a government. So they have more power than just their number of seats. In this case, it was Victor Lieberman's party uh, who had only five seats. And I think we mentioned it last time that he was the pivotal. Without him, Netanyahu only had 60, which is not enough to form a coalition. And there is some personal animosity between Lieberman and Netanyahu. And beyond that, Lieberman carries himself as uh, he's ahead of a right wing party, initially used to be more of a Russian party, but also one that is secular. So it's a Zionist but secular party. And his refusal to join the coalition uh, was based on the coalition agreement that would be signed with the ultra-Orthodox parties. And Lieber- Lieberman's a Russian immigrant, correct? Yes. And his base is really the 
the, the group of Russian immigrants who, who largely immigrated Israel in the 1980s, correct? In, in the late 80s and early 90s with the fall of the Soviet oh, okay. Union. Yeah. So these are relatively new immigrants. A lot of them are, well, now it's already second generation, uh, but they still have that suspicion of anything that is left-wing, uh, that might smell of social democracy mm -hmm. uh, because of where they come from. So they tend to lean more right. But, but, but they're not necessarily all that religious. They tend no. to be more secular. So they come from secular backgrounds right. because they come, yes, from Eastern Europe in under communist Soviet Union. Uh, most of them did not practice religion. They were not orthodox, um, certainly. So, uh, and there's been many issues associated with that community over the last couple of decades, since the early 1990s, that had to do with proving uh, their Jewish identity, which had to do with marriage and burial uh, and various other um, civilian procedures that are governed right now in Israel by the Orthodox. And it is a lot of times those Russian immigrants who were the victims of these policies, who were kind of in limbo, couldn't prove their Judaism, and therefore maybe weren't buried in certain I mean, cemeteries. These are very, very practical issues, right? Very I mean, if you're, yeah. your, your father dies, you might not be able to bury him uh, yes. in, a, in a Jewish cemetery right. or or getting married. Marriage in Israel is mandated. There's no civilian marriage in right. Israel, so you have to be married by religious authorities. So that was another issue. Yeah, so these are practical issues that are especially important to that community, and Lieberman kind of, he represents that niche. So he has a certain power within that community. And Lieberman has a long personal history with Netanyahu as well, correct? He was his chief of staff in the prime minister's office. Mm -hmm. That's where Lieberman got his uh, the beginning of his political career. He started off as being the chief of the prime minister's office. Mm -hmm. um, wow. And uh, he did that for a number of years, and then he joined the Likud, and then he splintered and created his own party. But his political ideology, his identity, is right-wing. He lives in the occupied territories. He lives in a settlement. Mm -hmm. um, so we shouldn't be fooling ourselves that he is... Uh, he has shifted to a more kind of democratically oriented civilian type of state, even though he's secular. Uh, he's still very much a Jewish Zionist, the leader of a Jewish Zionist party, and he refuses to sit with the Arab party, and he very much views the occupied territories as part of the greater Israel. So he's been refusing to negotiate that. And so back last spring, he, he and his party were key to Netanyahu's failure to form a government, right? They, yes. They yes. essentially withdrew over the ultra-Orthodox participation. Yes, and he basically took a political gamble that actually paid off very well for him. Uh, he decided that he's going to represent his voters, he's going to represent his niche voters, by saying, you know, I, I have to take a stance. I'm not going to join a party that is being held hostage since the Likud's relative size within a coalition went down from the in the last elections mm -hmm. in, in April from the elections before in 2015, it means that the other parties that form the coalition have more power to make demands. And so the ultra-Orthodox, who at that point, I think in, in April, had either 15 or 16 seats together, were able to make qu quite a few demands. And Lieberman, with his five seats, the only thing he could do was jeopardize creating a coalition, but compared to them, he didn't have as much power to try to mute their influence uh, over the Likud. Uh, and he saying that he is being true and representing his voters, his constituents, he said, I can't sit in a coalition that gives in to the ultra-Orthodox demands. That was his one key issue. It wasn't about 
the right wing. It wasn't about the occupation. It wasn't about the Israeli-Palestinian process. That was his one issue that he refused. So no government was formed. Elections were called for September 17th. Yes. Right. Again, and he knew that that's what would happen. And he was willing to take a hit of being kind of the bad guy who cost the country another election cycle. But he did get, instead of five seats, now he has eight seats. So that gamble worked pretty well for him. So we, we were essentially in a rematch situation, right? Yes. The same actors, essentially, uh, the blue and white headed by Benny Gantz, as the largest uh, party versus Likud headed by Netanyahu. So uh, a re rematch there. Uh, remind us a little more about Benny Gantz and who he is and what the blue and white represents compared uh, to Likud. It's hard to remind because we don't really know very much. Um, so we know that Benny Gantz was a, the chief of staff. He's a former general. Um, this is his first dibs into politics. So he's a political novice, which some analysts are saying is, is not going to do him very well in his maneuvering with Netanyahu, who has a lot of political experience and uh, knows how to play the system quite well. Um, so Gantz, but Gantz, on the other hand, he has that aura of a general, Israelis like generals, or Israeli um, Zionists like generals. He can present himself as Mr. Security to combat Netanyahu's attempt to present himself as Mr. Security, and I'm going to bring, um, I'm going to make sure that our country is safe and secure and protected. But in terms of ideology, he was never clear in his political campaign. Uh, he's not left wing, and I'm not really sure what to call center, if there is a, such a thing as center in Israel. But he did not discuss at all the occupation, the possibility of ending the occupation or finding a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict during his campaign. So it's not clear what his position on that is. Right. The, the main defining characteristic seems to be anti-Netanyahu, correct? Yes. yes. So the main uh, driving force behind Blue and White, which is made up of a mishmash of people who don't necessarily, we're not really sure if they share an ideology, is to create a party that takes the power away from the Likud because the Likud has been marred by corruption, has been involved in uh, undermining democratic institutions in Israel. So it's not necessarily an ideological uh, difference. Uh, it's a difference about how they view the state and the democratic institutions of the state and the rule of law. So this party was formed to do exactly that, to present an alternative to Netanyahu as a leader, an alternative to the Likud that seems to have been undermining democracy, but the Blue and White Party doesn't necessarily provide an alternative ideology. We have not heard about that yet. Right. So, th so they're all about sort of preserving the institutions of the state, the traditional liberal democratic institutions of Israel. Yes. Well, so that, that, that's more than simply being against Netanyahu personally, that they yes. have a, a broader concern for the erosion of those traditional liberal democratic values. Yes. In fact, that kind of should concern us because the fact that they did get as a new party, they got quite a significant number of votes. They became right. the second largest party in just one cycle. Um, just demonstrates to us how many Israeli citizens are concerned with the integrity of the institutions, that they're willing to vote for a party that is sort of a 
cat in the sack. We don't really know what it is. Um, but it seemed like an emergency situation where this was the only way uh, to have an alternative, that the Labor Party um, has had such a problematic and divisive history uh, that that party could not could no longer form uh, the counter to the Likud, that there needs to be a new party that, that creates that alternative. So over the summer, we've had a, another election campaign. Um, how did that go? What were the main events or issues that emerged this summer as as we had kind of a redo of this election? So from my perspective, this this new campaign was extremely xenophobic and full of racist or hate speech like we've never seen before. I think that part of it was driven by the fact that the Blue and White Party is an enigma in terms of its ideology. And Netanyahu and the Likud and the right-wing parties wanted to make sure that they maintain their voter base and actually increase it. Netanyahu's goal, which he did not achieve, was to get 61 seats without Lieberman. Mm -hmm. He did not achieve that. He has 55 seats without Lieberman. So with the, with the ultra-Orthodox, the right-wing parties and the Likud have 55 seats. So he needs Lieberman to form a coalition also now. So he did not achieve his goal, but he also wanted to make sure that none of his voters of those 55 seats uh, bleed away to other parties. And in order to do that, he had to make sure that he presents the blue and white party as a left-wing party even though they're not. So the personal attacks on the leaders of the Blue and White Party, uh, including a former a general who was the chief of staff in Israel, considered a war hero, were unprecedented. And also attacks on the left and on journalists uh, and on activists and on the Arab very, parties. Very familiar, Ruth. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so it sounds um, like USA. And yeah, yes, and yeah. I'm not sure which started. I think that, that Netanyahu has already perfected that method even before Trump appeared on the scene in the United States. Uh, but this went into new heights because in order for the Likud to save itself, in order for Netanyahu to save himself, he had to tie his biggest rival to the Arab party, which means that he had to present the Arab party as the enemy. And look at that, our former general, war hero, chief of staff, who had never demonstrated any sort of left-wing tendencies, all of a sudden, he's a terrorist. Uh, or he's uh, shaking hands with terrorists, and he will let terrorists in, and he is not safe, and he will not protect our country. Um, so that was the kind of um, campaigning that was happening. And it seems like from Netanyahu's perspective, this is he had to save himself. He has to save himself not just um, to stay in power, but also legally is embroiled in so many legal issues that right now the only thing that protects him is continuing to be prime minister and having that public support. Yeah, and in the election last April, he announced that they were annexing the Golan Heights, correct, right before the election? Yes. But this time, it was the... Well, Trump announced. Yeah. Trump announced. He, he, got, he, got a, he got a little help from Trump when Trump said right. that the Golan Heights is being recognized. Uh, this time, Netanyahu talked about annexing the, the West Bank of the Jordan. The right? Jordan Valley. So the Jordan Valley is part of the West right. Bank. It's, it's the part the, that's the strip that's next to the Jordan right. River. It's On the other side of the river is Jordan, the, is the, the country, country of Jordan. Jordan, right? The country of Jordan. So this is right on the border of what once was a uh, military foe of Israel, right? Yes. Yes, and since 1994, there's been a peace agreement with Jordan. Jordan does have a large... Uh, 
Palestinian ethnic community. I think more than 50% of Jordanians. But, but this area is considered strategically important for Israel. It's considered, right? yes, and it has a lot of the settlements uh, that are quite ideological, and part of it is just symbolic. And by saying that the Jordan Valley would be annexed, you're essentially saying there will be no Palestinian state, because what remains is between the Jordan Valley and what is Israel now, that is not a territory where a state can be created on. So it essentially means the end of any possibility of creating a Palestinian state. Um, there was no reaction from the American government, so this was different from the Golan Heights. Trump didn't um, endorse it. He also didn't publicly criticize it, um, but certainly there wasn't that endorsement. What Trump did do to try to help Netanyahu is right before the elections now, um, he had a phone conversation with him and he tweeted that he had discussed with Netanyahu a joint defense agreement with Israel. So just discussed, not nothing agreed upon, but that was thought part of Netanyahu's campaign, one of his biggest messages to Israeli voters, was that only he has the international standing to be able to lead Israel into the challenges of the future. His relationship with Trump, his relationship with Putin, he went to see Putin in Sochi a few days before the elections. There were huge signs, huge billboards with photographs of Netanyahu with Trump, Netanyahu with Putin, uh, Netanyahu with Modi of, of India. Uh, so these are the leaders he's gravitating towards and he's selling himself as the only leader who has that sort of international standing that will help protect Israel and lead it into the 21st century. Right, but, and back to this annexation though, also what he was doing is uh, differentiating himself from Gantt, so I guess wanted to maintain the status quo. Yeah. The Israeli army still occupies that right now, they, they occupy that area, right? Yes. So. So it's under Israeli control right now, but it's not formally part of Israel. No. So he's sort of ratcheting it up a little more and saying, well, now we're going to make it formally part of Israel, which makes him more uh, assertive of Israel's right to this territory and the fact that uh, it would always be under Israeli control. And, and does that also send a message about any kind of future agreement with the Palestinians? Oh, yes, and he, he's not necessarily interested in that, but I also add to what you just said, is that it wasn't really just counter Gantz, because Gantz's voters remained Gantz's voters. The people who voted for the Blue and White Party are largely people who do not want Netanyahu to be prime minister. Um, and no matter what declarations he makes on the Jordan Valley, that isn't going to change. What Netanyahu was trying to do with that declaration of annexation of the Jordan Valley was to take away votes from the right-wing parties, the smaller right-wing parties. He shifted Likud to the right. His rhetoric, his discussions, he had the challenge of um, two right-wing parties, not just Yamina or the right, that was a joint party of a couple of different right-wing parties, but also the Kahanist party that was allowed to compete this time after many years of not being allowed to compete for its racist uh, message, and he feared that they won't pass a threshold, which they didn't, um, but there would be votes that would be lost to it. So his message that went further to the right was also it was directed at the settlers, at the right-wing uh, voters, uh, to say to them, the Likud is your home. Don't try to vote for a more right-wing government. We want a big Likud. He wanted to have as many votes as possible so that 
like we see today, um, so that he would get the mandate from the president to try to form a coalition. At that point, that's what he was concerned about. At that point where he made that statement in the election, where we're very close to, to the election, it was just maybe three weeks ago, he saw the polls, he knew where things were going, he didn't necessarily think that he would be able to take away votes from blue and white. He wanted to make sure that the Likud is a bigger party altogether. Okay. And so what happened? Well, go through the results with us. What did all this produce last um, Tuesday? So um, just more headaches. <laughs> so... Uh, I mean, more it's sort of a deadlock, right? I mean, it's a deadlock. So the, the two major clusters didn't really change in size. The right-wing cluster is still about 64, 65. And the left-wing cluster, that also includes the Arab Party, is about 55 or 56. So uh, in, in the right-wing cluster, I'm including Lieberman. Right. Um, so again, Lieberman remains, although now with more power, because instead of five seats, now he has eight seats. So from his point of view, this was a great success, right? Yes. He almost doubled the size of his presence in the, in the Knesset, right? Right, yeah. The only uh, wrench that can be put in his plan is if Netanyahu succeeds in forming a uh, what they call a joint coalition, a joint coalition that now we're hearing talk about, and this is what the president was trying to push uh, Blue and White Party and the Likud to do, uh, to, to the tune of much criticism because it is not the president's role to try to intervene in the coalition building process, is to create a unity government between the Likud and Gantz. That unity government would have more than 60 seats, and that would leave Lieberman out. So if there's a unity government between blue and white and Likud, that unity government can decide if it wants to add to its coalition the ultra-Orthodox or Lieberman. Those smaller parties would have much less of a say or power uh, over the coalition agreement. Okay, I, well, I want to get to more discussion of the, the coalition formation business. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we do that, you want to tell us a little bit about the uh, Arab parties? There was a joint... Uh, Arab party this time, and their influence seemed to be a little greater this time than in the past. Yeah. Uh, give us some background on that, please. So this, I think, is one of the most interesting stories of this, and that finally kind of emerges. Um, obviously, there is no homogeneity within the Arab community. The Arab community in Israel uh, makes up about 20% of the electorate. So about one in five citizens of Israel are Arab or non-Jewish. Um, there have been a number of parties. Each of these parties has a different platform. Uh, and there's a few different things that are of concern to the Arab minority in Israel. First of all, there's the domestic issues, their own issues. They're being treated as second-class citizens. Oftentimes, that means that uh, there's less funding for Arab towns and villages. There's discrimination. Uh, there's crimes in some of these towns, and they're fighting to get more uh, funding for security. Um, so there's kind of those day-to-day -day concerns that voters have. And then there's also the more global political concerns of their, their Palestinian Israelis and their relatives are Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza. These are the same ethnic people. And so the more global concerns 
about the priest process, about the prospects of a Palestinian state, are also part of their ideology. And there is not necessarily a consensus among all of these, uh, all the Arab parties and the Arab constituencies over how exactly to rank their different interests and how to present their priorities and also how to interact with a government in a Jewish state that makes them second-class citizens. So, you know, this happens in other countries as well. When you have a minority that is left out, does that minority react by trying to gain more power and work from within the system? Or do they just kind of boycott the system and say, we're not going to vote because our vote doesn't count anyway? So if you remember in 2015, uh, when Netanyahu was panicking right before the elections, he had this last ditch message that uh, a recording, a video recording that was spread all over um, the internet through his social media, where he was warning all his voters that the Arabs are flocking to the polls and the Arabs are voting. They're coming on buses that are funded by George Soros and other left-wing organizations. And, and he was talking about Israeli citizens, but he was talking about them as if they were enemies. He did the same thing this summer, except this summer and this second round, this is what the opportunity that the Arab parties had having the second round uh, was that they kind of took the high road. They united, even though there's disagreement, so it's three different parties, they united under one joint Arab list. And they encouraged a high voter turnout. So the voter turnout among the Arab population was much higher, was more than 10% higher than it was in April. And that gave them more power. So now they have 13 seats. They're the third largest party um, if they had a higher turnout, they could have been even, because when you think about it, they're 20%, so they could be even higher. And that means that they can they can use that power, except neither blue and white, obviously Likud, but also blue and white has, has made a commitment not to have them join in a coalition. The remarkable thing, and I don't know if, if um, some of the people listening have read uh, the column in the New York Times from a couple of days ago by the leader of the joint Arab list, uh, Ayman Odeh, uh, who recommended Gantz for prime minister. So the way coalitions are formed, every party goes to the president and recommends who they think should form a coalition, despite the fact that blue and white party said unequivocally that they will not form a coalition with the Arab parties. The Arab parties recommended them, and that's a precedent. The last time an Arab party recommended a candidate uh, to form a coalition was uh, in 1992 when Rabin was elected. And ever since then, the Arab parties kind of stepped aside from that political game because they felt that they were being discriminated against, which was true. So, so that adds to the number of seats that Blue and White has behind them yes. in forming a government. Yes. Technically, uh, or the terminology that is used for that is support from outside the coalition. So they can count on that support. But, but, but they won't yeah. serve as ministers in the government. They will not yeah. join in a government coalition if Gantz, if Blue and White, is true to their word to their voters, which brings us again to the fact yeah, that it, most um, voters are right-wing. Just let me back up a minute. So yeah. the way it works is that if Blue and White, Benny Gantz and, and Blue and White, could get support from 61 parliamentarians in Neset, they could form a government. Yes. And this government would essentially be in place because of support from the Arab parties, yes. but none of the members of the Arab parties would be government ministers or involved directly in the government. Yes. They would simply lend their votes yes. in support of Yes, and we call it a narrow coalition. That's the right. term for that is a narrow coalition. Um, they don't want to do this. They prefer not to do this. I think, from my understanding, Gantz's 
Blue and White's ideal or their chosen strategy would be to form a joint coalition with the Likud, but without Netanyahu. So to have Netanyahu removed, to have a joint coalition with the Likud, but where Gantz, because he's the largest party. So now we're talking about Blue and White received 33 seats, Likud received 32 seats. So his position is, I should be prime minister first. Even if there's a rotation, it should first go to blue and white because they received more seats. But if we do, but if we add in the supporting parties, mm-hmm. then Netanyahu's group is larger, right? It's larger, which is why today the president gave Netanyahu the mandate to try to form a coalition first. And, and he gave are, him one week. What are the numbers there? I forget. So the Likud has 32 seats. The ultra-Orthodox, both the Sephardi and the Ashkenazi together, have, I believe, 16 seats. But all together... Is 55 without Lieberman. 55 for Netanyahu without Lieberman. For Netanyahu, the right wing and the religious. And, and Gantz only has 54, right? No, Gantz has 44. 44? Yes. He has 54 with the support of the Arab party. Right. Yeah, but still, has, it's one less than... Netanyahu. He has less than Netanyahu, yes. He has 33, and then he has the uh, Labor Party, which has six seats, and he has the Democratic Party, which has five seats. So he has another 11 seats to his 33. And so the, the president today, th- there was an effort supposedly by Netanyahu and Gantz to discuss a unity government, and that failed. So the president today just told Netanyahu, you have the biggest group behind you, so by one seat, mm-hmm. uh, so you get the first chance of trying to form a government. Right, yeah. So while Lieberman didn't recommend anybody, um, the only reason why Gans has almost the same as the Likud is because the Arab parties recommended him. But not even, if all of the Arab parties, so this is this is to complicate the picture even further, and we don't know if some of it is political strategizing or not. So the Arab joint list decided in a meeting that they had a couple days ago, a few days ago, to recommend um, Blue and White, to recommend Gantz to form a coalition. At the last moment when they came to the president's residence, one faction of it, Balad decided that they are withdrawing their support. So not all 13 of them recommended guns. So that means that there was 55 to 54. Now, there was some pundit explanation that each of them, Gantz and Netanyahu, they each preferred to be the second ones to have the opportunity to form a coalition, that for some reason that would be more beneficial to them. So there was a thought that maybe the Arab joint list did this on purpose so that Netanyahu would be the first one to take a shot at creating a coalition with the idea that he would fail, and then after a week, the president will transfer the mandate to Gantz and to Blue and White Party. Okay, so we're going to well, find that pretty, out next That week. sounds pretty intricate. So as yes. we stand today, the president has picked Netanyahu. Yes. Netanyahu has how long? About a week? He, has a, he gave him a week. A week to put together a coalition. We're kind of back where we were in April almost, yes. right? But with kind of a yes. little different... If Lieberman, if somehow he finds a way to bring Lieberman on board, then he has a coalition. If he finds a way to bring Blue and White on board, then he also has a coalition. Um, it seems like his strategy right from the get-go is to create fear, is to talk about um, 
a possible war with Iran, the big challenges that Israel has in its neighborhood, the peace plan that the Trump administration might bring to the table as soon as this election cycle is over, and that he is the only person who can handle those challenges. But from what you said before, it seems that a difference between now and April is that Lieberman's in a stronger position, he has more seats to offer, and the ultra-Orthodox are in a slightly weaker position? They're about the same. About the same. Yeah. Lieberman took some seats from the Likud, but it didn't, like, overall, it didn't really change that much. Okay. Yeah, and the two clusters are still about the same size. So we might find ourselves in the very same situation. I mean, they are talking about still the possibility of another election if if it doesn't work out. There isn't support among the Israeli electorate to hold a third election, and the president had warned. Um, so President Rivlin had said, there's no appetite for another election. We have to try to form a coalition. We have to get over our differences and, and form the coalition. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a third election would come out any different, right? I mean, there's Yes, no I mean, it's, it seems like everybody's um, kind of dug in their own positions, and then it really represents the, the schism within Israeli society, where the majority of Israeli Jews are right-wing and refused and don't see the Arab citizens as equal in the nation state. They see the Arab citizens that now form about a fifth of the population with suspicion and they refuse to have them as part of a coalition. On the other hand, there's the ultra-Orthodox who have grown in numbers over the years and now are a formidable political player uh, within Israeli politics. And so we have the kind of left-right cluster. I should say it's mostly right-wing. And then on the two sides, we have the Arab parties that are now 13 seats and the ultra-Orthodox parties or now 16 seats. So with that, it's very difficult to form, it's impossible really to form a coalition without one or the other, unless the left and the right get together, unless the two big parties really unite. But if they are uniting, then we really are saying essentially that there's just one right-wing party. But Lieberman's kind of a wild card in here, right? I mean, he could, of course, he wants neither to be part of a government that has the ultra-Orthodox in it, but he certainly would be averse to being in a government that's even supported by the Arabs, I would right. think. Yes. So yes. that limits uh, his yeah. maneuverability yeah. unless he makes some kind of yeah. deal could, that would set aside his normal yeah. predilections. He's had a long history of making deals that sometimes don't seem likely. His critics say that his principles are pretty... Um, flexible once he gets in a deal what he wants to get in a deal so now that he has eight seats he could possibly solicit from a coalition of the Likud and the ultra-orthodox kind of a better deal for his constituents and maybe then he can spin it as to you know this is better than what we would have gotten in April this was all worth it so he could end up sitting in a government with them uh, and, and spin it in his favor, saying that this was much a much better agreement than they would have gotten otherwise. But that would require Netanyahu to put considerable pressure on the ultra-Orthodox parties, right? They would have to perhaps give up some of their concerns in order to bring in Lieberman. And, that and they might, you know, if faced with the possibility of a government that doesn't include them, they might be willing to make certain sacrifices or maybe even cosmetic sacrifices 
because what's more important for them is to actually be in a government. And if they've shifted to the right, and it seems that the ultra-Orthodox have become, and their constituents, have become much more right-wing than they had been during Rabin's time. The last time that they were in a coalition with, not with the Likud, was in 1992, when Shas, the ultra-Orthodox Faradi party, joined in a coalition with the Labor Party, with Rabin's Labor Party. Since then, they've become much more right-wing for various reasons, and they're less likely to support a coalition that includes, for example, the Democratic camp, which is the former Merits Party, which calls for civil rights and equality and, and, and is a secular Zionist party. So it seems to me then that I, I think we should then bring in here Netanyahu's personal situation. Uh, he, he is facing the possibility of an indictment on various corruption charges, but if he's prime minister, he's protected from that, right? And he wants to have enacted a law that would basically protect him from prosecution. So it seems to me that he has a very strong incentive here to work out something between Lieberman and the ultra-Orthodox. Yes, he does. And, you know, his critics are saying that, including Gantz and the the Blue and White Party, which is why their kind of their main platform issue is that Netanyahu cannot be uh, part of a government, him personally, not the Likud, but him personally, is because of that. Every decision that he makes, every policy that he would choose to pursue is clouded with that suspicion that he's acting on his own personal behalf rather than for the interest of the country because he is embroiled in a number of cases. There's a hearing before his final indictment, I think in about a week, and that will determine a lot. And so, and, and so far, he's been treating it as kind of as a blasé. His response to the indictment before the hearing was just a one-page. He didn't even refer to any of the allegations against him. He just says it's all false. It's all fake. It's all lies. It's not true. Um, so that's his position. And he definitely, and this is one of the reasons why his critics are saying he can't be the leader of a new government because we can't trust his decision-making given these legal issues. Um, he should first clear his name before he can go back to politics and, and see these the, the indictments and possible trials, see them through before he goes back to politics. From his perspective, he's fighting for his life, so he doesn't want to be faced with that. If he's no longer prime minister, if he's no longer leading the government, um, then he will be exposed much more. Then he would be kind of like a wounded animal. And then also all the vultures who want to go after him, all of those who are now, even though if they might think that uh, that he should be indicted or the law should treat him equally, they're scared of him, all of a sudden they wouldn't be. He wouldn't seem as powerful if he's no longer prime minister. And he knows that. Right. So his th- this is an opportunity then that he has for the next week. If he can yeah. somehow put together a coalition with him as prime minister, he's more secure. And from what you said, it sounds like that means talking with Lieberman. Yes. Uh, The second best option for him would be a unity government where Ian Gantz would share. Yes, but he he needs to be the first. He wants to be the first in the rotation. Uh, So Israel already has a history of having unity coalitions where there's a rotation between the leaders of the two big parties. And so one is prime minister for two years and the other is prime minister for the other two years. Um, So in the late 80s, um, it was between the the Likud and Labor Party did that rotation government as well. So he, it's important for him to be first because now is when his cases are being uh, brought. So so presumably these discussions 
over the last few days between Gantz and Netanyahu probably failed because Gantz wasn't going to agree yeah. to the Netanyahu being prime minister first. Yeah, so we have to remember that this was Gantz's, because Gantz's party doesn't really have a very clear ideology, the main purpose of the party was Netanyahu cannot be prime minister. So if he now goes back and says, okay, we've signed an agreement and Netanyahu is going to be prime minister, uh, he will have misled all his voters, and he knows that. So that is a very tough one uh, for him. For Netanyahu, there's only really two choices, a government in which he's the prime minister or new elections. From his perspective, there's no other choice. Right. So get out your crystal ball. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen here? Oh, man. Um, uh, by the time this is uploaded, history probably would be beyond us. Some, something right. will have happened. But, um, but anyway. The pessimist in me thinks that this is just another beating on Israel's democracy. It's just another, this kind of deadlock situation is going to turn more people away, especially those who are in privileged positions, um, which means kind of middle class, Jewish, vote, the, even the voters for, for the blue and white party, uh, who are just going to say, it's just not going to work, it's not worth it. These are not, they're not going out on the streets. Um, with the democratic institutions of the state being pounded upon, we're not seeing the kinds of reactions that, let's say, we're seeing in Hong Kong. We are not seeing that kind of backlash against the infringement on democratic ideals, which leads me to believe that the necessity for democratic institutions and strong democratic ideals is not a priority for most Israelis. So that's the pessimist in me. The optimist in me and what, what made me a little happy after this second round of elections was the success of the joint Arab list and, and the way they participated in this election cycle and after the elections uh, were concluded, after the votes were, were counted, in their ability to perhaps bring up to the forefront the conversation about their role in Israeli politics, their role in society. And this is a very important conversation that most Israelis have been avoiding, and the world has been avoiding. American Jews have avoided this conversation of the role and the position and the status of Israel's non-Jewish citizens, and how do we square a democratic country with the fact that 20% of its citizens are not Jewish and this democratic country wants to call itself a Jewish country. How do we treat that minority? Um, so it, it has a connection uh, to the relationship between Israel and the diaspora, between Israel and its allies, especially its democratic allies. Israel and its allies still like to uh, wave the flag of democracy every once in a while. The special relationship between Israel and the United States is still considered important because Israel is, quote-unquote, the only democracy in the Middle East. But the charade of being the only democracy in the Middle East could very well come to an end uh, if it's out in the open that one-fifth of the, of the population of the citizens are, in fact, not equal participants in this democracy. And I'm not even talking about the Palestinians in the occupied territories. I'm talking about the citizens. I mean, that's a whole other story. So it sounds like the next month or so in Israel is going to be a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, and, all and mixed we'll up see. with the high holidays. And, that's right. <laughs> a lot to atone for. <laughs> uh, and so, so we'll have to see what happens. So thanks again very much for bringing your insights to this very complicated uh, political situation. And I, 
I hope our listeners manage to get through all the ins and outs there of, of all the different parties and, and the like. But anyway, I'm sure they were enlightened by what you had to say, Ruth. So thanks so much. And we'll have to have you back again when we find out uh, what happens. What happens. Thank you. <laughs> so and thanks again to Beyond the News Feeds production assistant, Reagan Wind, PC Class of 2020. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr, Vice President for Marketing and Communications, and his staff for their support of our podcast. And most of all, thanks to all of you, our listeners and subscribers. Uh, please tell four friends about the podcast. Uh, we always want more subscribers and listeners. Thanks very much. <laughs>